Welcome to the Parish Art Museum podcast, where we aspire to provide opportunities for learning, sharing, and celebrating the many innovative and pioneering artists who call the East End home. Come back each week to find new and impactful experiences in the arts. Welcome everyone to Friday Night Live from the Parish Art Museum. I'm Terry Sultan, the director of the Parish Art Museum, and I'm very thrilled to welcome you to one of our fireside chats. I was just talking to a colleague recently who said that this was a really wonderful way to have these kinds of conversations because it feels like we're just in your living room instead of being in a big auditorium with 200 people. It's just like Andres and I are with you having a glass of wine and just talking. I do want to thank our sponsors that make these Friday Night Live chats possible. Uh, Bank of America is our presenting sponsor, the Corcoran Group, and Steve and Sandy Pearlbinder. With me tonight, calling in from Bellport, is Andres Santo, who is a cultural strategist, a sociologist, a writer, a researcher uh, in the fields of art, media, culture, and policy. He is the former director of the National Arts Journalism Program at Columbia University, a program that went from 1997 to 2005, which is where I first met Andras. Uh, so we've had a long and, uh, and fruitful relationship, collegial relationship. Andras has written extensively. His essays and editorials have appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, uh, Art Forum, Artnet, uh, the Art Newspaper. And through his company, he consults on programming, strategic initiatives. And what we're going to talk about tonight is this idea of uh, new strategies for the new normal. Andres, tell me how it is that you crafted this editorial that recently appeared in Artnet that uh, has apparently gone viral around the world. <laughs> well, thank you, Terry, and thank you for everyone for joining. And um, you know, like every museum director and like every museum staff, I want to applaud all of you. I know these are difficult and complicated times to um, navigate. And uh, here on Long Island, we know we've had our share of difficulties um, and we're all looking forward uh, to the parish reopening, uh, hopefully as soon as possible so we can spend wonderful times there. This article, I think in a way, is, is, is an artifact of this moment, not just because it's about this moment, but because of sort of what happened to it. You know, I've been writing for many, many years. I'm not sure anything quite like this has happened before. It, it, it actually started with an Instagram post. Like many people, I write a lot on Instagram. In fact, my sons tell me like I like, I write ridiculously too much on Instagram. And one day I came upon, in the morning, I opened the New York Times and there was a picture of a disinfection, disinfectation station. I think it was in Afghanistan of all places. And it showed a man standing uh, and being spritzed from all sides going through this machine. And my first instinct was that, gosh, this kind of looks like the rain room. It looks like some sort of art installation. And this is sort of a few weeks ago. And, and so I jotted down on Instagram very quickly a few ideas about some of the things we could be doing to really begin to get our heads around what it would mean to reopen museums. Uh, one of which was that we could have these kind of almost like experiential 
uh, maybe get artists to do that, you know, like that would be kind of cool. But it was one of maybe five or six points. And then that went on to LinkedIn, more people saw it. And then good friends at Artnet called up and said, or rather emailed and said, why don't you turn it into an op-ed? And so I spent the weekend writing up this op-ed and essentially trying to do three things in it. One, explain why it's really important to reopen museums right now. Uh, two, what could be some practical steps we could take? And three, what does the future hold? And it went out right after Easter weekend, and it just completely caught fire. Um, uh, this is one of several talks that are about to happen. It appeared in Brazil in Portuguese, it appeared in Mexico in Spanish, and I think very, it, it probably hit a very fortunate moment when people were kind of ready to start thinking about what it would mean to reopen. And we can get into the details, but I, I think that in a way what I wanted to say through all of this is that among many other things, it's a moment when people are really paying attention. There's a lot of conversations happening. I mean, we need to have a lot of conversations. Um, and certainly for someone who occasionally writes, it's really nice that people have taken notice. Well, it's, uh, it's true. I think we've kind of reached the point now where we really want to start talking about what the new normal is going to be for all of us. Uh, we've been in lockdown for um, almost a month, maybe even a little bit more than a month. I think that those of us who work in art museums and all kinds of other cultural institutions, uh, we are engaged in these uh, activities because we really do very much believe that that art has the power to transform lives that uh, cultural institutions are essential to a thriving uh, society and we want to be able to get back in touch with our communities to start a new kind of dialogue so the interesting thing is uh, what is that dialogue going to be as I don't think it's going to be the same as it was before. And how can we make sure that everybody, staff and the public, feels safe enough and engaged enough to want to start to restart life in a, in a strong way? And in your article, you made some very practical recommendations, which I, it's interesting. There is something like universal synchrony in the world all the art museum directors, all the, you know, the uh, orchestra directors, they're all talking about how are we going to have social distancing and still have an audience? Uh, how are we going to communicate with people? What does it mean to be relevant in the society today that's been radically changed from what it was even, you know, six weeks ago? So aside from the practical suggestions that you made about timed entrances to the museum and ways of social distancing, making sure that we give out masks and stuff like that. You also had some other more strategic and philosophical points to make in that article, which I'd kind of like to talk about too, in terms of community engagement and uh, what kind of staff is going to be the right sort of staff and what kind of exhibitions and performances are we going to be focusing on so do you want to talk a little bit about your ideas on that yeah i mean i, I let's start maybe at the at the at the top at the sort of most meta part of this which you alluded to a minute ago when you used the word essential you know there's a lot of talk today about essential and non-essential institutions or activities and it really kills me that right now in some parts of america you know nail salons and hair salons are opening before museums i'm not sure it sends the right message 
And in fact, one of the goals of this article was to point out, which it did, that we as a field in the last 20, 30 years in particular, have been advocating for a very democratic idea of the museum that is essential to its community. Hasn't always been the case. If you, if you dial back the clock 50 years or 60 years, museums were much more elitist institutions. They were much more academic institutions. And what they claimed was that they're, they're important because they safeguard objects, uh, but they were really not for all of society. I think we have made enormous strides in the last few decades positioning the museum as an absolutely core civil society institution. So therefore, it seemed to me, and that's the first part of this article, is that if our advocacy for museums is going to be that we're essential, then we better be near the front of the line when things are reopening. I mean, it would be a shame to have the mall reopen before the museum. And unfortunately, I think that that is what we're beginning to see. And all the more so because I think as a practical matter, many of our museums are able to physically reopen. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's not costly. I'm not saying it's not complicated. But we have a lot of room, unlike many other people. Unlike performing arts institutions, we don't rely on participation at this, a lot of people at the same time. I think if we're honest with ourselves on many Wednesday mornings, we don't have a heck of a lot of people necessarily in our galleries. So it would seem to me that as a practical problem, it's solvable, but more importantly, as a kind of a larger, as you say, philosophical issue, I think it's incredibly important, especially now, if we're going to see museums once again, making a strong claim for public dollars, public uh, support, foundation support, there seems to me a disconnect between being closed, not being available to people, not being able to provide those benefits and being essential at the same time. It's one or the other, but it's hard to be both. So that's the sort of big point. I mean, in terms of, and we can come back to that if you would like, but I think in terms of the adaptations, you know, I, I there were sort of three areas that we can, you know, focus on if you'd like, and which I talked about. One was the degree to which the programming of museums is likely to change, at least on the near term. The business model of museums, especially large museums, has been very heavily weighted to temporary exhibitions, including international loans. Many of your viewers here today know that every major object that comes to a museum from another museum you know, is going to come on a plane, it's going to come with a, a chaperone as, as a museum staff member that has to come with the object. And then, of course, you have galleries crammed with people to look at these precious things, and they're extremely expensive. So one of the things that is unfortunately likely to change that those types of exhibitions will be fewer and far between. Every museum director now has to cut, and you cut the most expensive things first in general. The second sort of big area has to do with staffing, and we can come back to this. This has been a very difficult time for museums. We have seen announcements um, and we are just beginning, I think, to see the tip of the iceberg of announcements of museum uh, layoffs and furloughs. Some of this has been staved off in this country because many museums have been able to apply for temporary support, but it's not gonna last forever. So you're going to see another wave, I, I predict. 
And so it's like any organization, it will force museums into thinking about different ways of running the organization. It's not something any museum director wants to do, but it's unfortunately inevitable. And truthfully, there are some things on the to-do list of many directors that maybe this crisis will precipitate. Uh, you know, as, as somebody in the Obama administration famously said, never let a crisis go to waste. Um, and then a third piece, and we can revisit these as we go in our conversation, but a third aspect was perhaps the silver lining uh, in all of this, which is that, you know, situations like this tend to accelerate changes that were already bubbling under the surface. We are manifesting this in this very moment. We are demonstrating that we can have a meaningful interaction using this technology as almost probably everybody who's listening has been Zooming all week uh, with their colleagues and family members. It turns out you don't always have to get on a flight to go to the other end of the world to close a deal or make a speech or whatever your reason is. And so those types of changes will accelerate. And in the case of museums, I think what we're seeing and likely going to see is an acceleration of a kind of new, a new museology, which has been on people's lips for a long time. If you're one of those poor people like both of us are who attend a lot of museum conferences, you're gonna hear a lot about community engagement and education and diversity and inclusion and outreach and equity and you know being present in the community wonderful things you're going to probably hear actually less about objects because these have been the sort of cutting edge of how museums have been evolving and thinking about themselves and of course an, an epic societal crisis like the current one definitely favors that type of thinking so very likely Museums will be looking closer in, in their communities and looking for ways to be vital to those uh, communities. All of which is to say that, you know, crises have an initial stage, which is the painful stage. And that's the, the stage that we're really experiencing. This is sort of the, we're in the thick of the war and there's, you know, bodies on the battlefield. But then afterwards, yesterday, Elizabeth Colbert uh, said on a, some show, the upside of down is how she called it. There are silver linings in terms of innovation and in terms of coming out of this with sort of our best foot forward. Yeah, I think that you know this idea of the new museology is, as you mentioned, it's not it's not new. You know, objects are still going to have a major role in a museum. I mean, that's what we're here for. But I think that the new museology is largely about programming around objects. And you mentioned something uh, in an article that you wrote in 2010, when we were just finishing up with the, uh, the major 2008 recession. And I wanna to refer to that back in a second, because I have a question to ask you about some of the things that you mentioned in that article. But, you know, this notion of the, the primacy of the object uh, and how to make it relevant and also um, mining the, of course, we're fortunate to have more than 3,500 objects in our collection that we, that we can mine and find new ways of, of talking about them. So some things will shift and some things, you know, you might still have exhibitions that are on view, but the way in which the material is going to be presented and talked about, uh, as you mentioned, that it was about, you know, coming up with the compelling storytelling. You know, what is the story that these objects have to tell to us and how, 
how are those stories relevant to our lives? And I remember when I was a little girl, uh, when I started visiting museums, and of course, there were no, there really weren't any didactic labels that went along with pictures in museums very much. It was, uh, you know, here's a picture, here's the title, here's the artist that made it, and uh, everything else you're supposed to make up for yourself. And I remember that there was, uh, there was a time when that started to change. And then it's like, who is telling the stories? And how does the community become part of the framework of the narrative. And I think that is where museums like the parish in particular that are leaner, meaner little fighting machines where like skiffs instead of frigates or, you know, we're not the Exxon Valdez. We've done a lot of work, especially through our, our curator of special projects and arts reach, Corinne Ernie, with town halls and storytelling and finding ways to give the community voice to how they're going to interact with, with our objects. Of course, you have to be open in order for that to happen. And you have to find a way to make people feel like they're stakeholders in the institution that you have. So some of these practical things that we're going to have to do to make people feel physically safe in our buildings could potentially be barriers to the welcoming philosophically of how to be involved with the storytelling of the museum. If you have to wash your hands before you come into the building, put on a mask, perhaps have your temperature taken, find a way to pay your admission without having anybody touch you. How do you mitigate those kinds of activities and then make it so that maybe there's a little bit of stress when you walk into the building, but then somehow the first thing you see is going to help you relax and become part of the story. Well, gosh, there's a lot of things you bring up here. I mean, um, the, the first thing I think I would say is my great friend, Phil Tinari, runs a museum in Beijing. And I talk with him a lot these days because he, they're actually opening their first exhibition. And the other day he said, it's not so much that our roles that are changing, it's how we occupy those roles as museums. And I thought that was a wise way of looking at it. I mean, obviously the heart of the enterprise is objects and art and the ideas around art, but there's an awful lot we can do. And I, I, I agree with you that, you know, some of those things would increase uh, what, uh, what you could call the threshold resistance. The, the previous owner of Sotheby's who came out of, uh, used to run malls, he had this term threshold resistance. I'm not sure that that will be so detrimental. I mean, and I leave it to my psychiatrist friends to theorize. Sometimes if there's a little bit of a cost to something, if it's a little bit hard to get, sometimes it's even more attractive. I think that what I would say instead is that I actually think that we as a field have already been putting a lot of obstacles between the objects and engagement, sometimes with very good intentions. I have a great friend named Dennis Scholl, who I think you also know down in uh, Miami. He's a collector, he used to be the arts officer of the um, uh, Knight Foundation. And he tells a great story. Years ago, he went to um, a big city in the Midwest, which happens to have a beautiful museum designed by some very fancy Swiss architects. And he pulls up in a taxi and the taxi is, is driven by a, a driver who in, as they were talking, he realizes or he learns it's a recent arrival from Haiti. He just is an immigrant from Haiti. 
and they pull up in front of this shiny museum, a museum that many people, I'm sure you have, I have, uh, would visit as we would make a pilgrimage to see this museum. We are very attracted to this shiny architecture. And he asked the driver, have you ever been inside? And the driver says, well, no, 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 this is not, that's not a place for me. And Dennis remembers asking him, so how did this guy know it's not for him? Because probably the people who run this museum are, would love to have him in there. And then he asks the driver, uh, what about the library down the street? Do you ever go to the, oh, well, we are at the library all the time. So what I want to say is that I think that the, the modes of display and the institutional strategies that we have pursued, which have certainly been very successful in capturing the interests of highly educated, prosperous uh, members of the public, in some cases have been obstacles for a wider audience who didn't necessarily feel that they were culturally or economically entitled. And I would go beyond that as well, that the modes of display, and I don't want to get too technical here, but I'm assuming that anybody who's tuning into a parish talk about museum strategy is uh, sort of with us here, that sort of our strategies of display inside the museum, you know, our white boxes, our very spare way of presenting, even though we now have much better storytelling, we have much better catalogs, much better wall labels, but you know, we have these hard concrete floors and we have, you know, white sheetrock and we put things in glass vitrines and, you know, there's a kind of hush-hush reverent feeling. Some of that can create an estrangement as well. So yeah. I think that it's really part of a larger package and if we are serious as we want to be in in terms of engaging a broader audience we probably will see us pivoting more in the direction of a more experiential museum a more participatory museum a museum where you could talk back a museum where you could perhaps even suggest god forbid what goes on view and in this respect you mentioned that in an earlier life i used to work in a journalism school and I was around, I mean, I was trained as a sociologist, but I, I ran this uh, think tank for journalists. And that was at, at the time when the media were being massively disrupted. And, you know, in the 90s, when really the internet disrupted the media in a way that uh, we, you know, in the museum sphere, we really haven't been disrupted in the same way. What happened? Until that point, what was the news was decided for you by the editors of the newspaper. You got the newspaper in the morning, you were lucky to get it, and if you didn't like it, you were free to maybe write a letter to the editor, which weeks later perhaps, you know, were, was run if it was deemed to be, you know, sufficiently erudite or whatever. And that was about it. Fast forward a decade, the editorial product of even the best newspapers now is based on a very deep understanding of what are the things that the audience actually resonates with as it's interested in. Now, obviously along with that comes anxiety about sort of the race to the bottom and you know, all they will care about is the Kardashians and so on. But in fact, that's not what happened. The New York Times today is a much more, is a much bigger, much more widely read publication than it ever has been. So, when I think about these issues that you raise, it's I really think that it's not about whether you'll have to clean your hand with Purell or uh, wait in your car until your number is up to come in. I think it's what happens inside the gallery. You know, who's talking to you? 
Are they talking at you? Are they talking with you? Are they listening to you? Are they putting on art in which you see yourself? Are they telling stories in which you discover yourself, your community? I think that will far outweigh any physical inconveniences that we may put in the way of the museum visit. That's interesting. Um, I just want to let everybody know, first of all, we have uh, more than 130 people with, with us in our fireside chat tonight. So I'm hoping that you're enjoying the intimacy of this way of talking. Uh, there is a Q&A uh, button at the bottom of your screen. If you want us to address any particular issues, please go ahead and use that. Uh, you can also put something in the in the chat section because uh, we're looking at both. And actually, one of our first comments came from someone who did mention that as we were talking about ways of connecting the objects to the community and obviously our education departments, even though we're trying not to silo so much so that it wouldn't necessarily be just the education department, but it would be everybody that's involved in the staffing of the museum that could help uh, craft these narratives, made the comment that uh, there are several museums that have in fact uh, furloughed or laid off many members of their education staff because they're not open, and so they don't need docents, they don't need you know, in-gallery speakers as much, and there's only so much you can do online. So uh, I guess to kind of address that issue, let's talk a little bit about education departments versus curatorial departments versus uh, you know, digital departments. And one of the other things that you mentioned in your editorial has to do with the, uh, the need to disintegrate the silo and have different voices across even staff to move forward in this new way of uh, connecting objects to the community. Wow, another great, wonderful topic and the topic of many, many uh, gatherings. I had the um, uh, great honor for some years to run a kind of think tank for museum directors at the Metropolitan Museum, it's, uh, the Global Museum Leaders Colloquium. And museum directors came from all around the world and we spent almost two weeks together talking very, very, very deep ways about these issues. And I can tell you that irrespective of the fact of whether they were from India or from Germany or France or the United States, museum directors, particularly museum directors focusing on more contemporary art, you know, encyclopedic museums are fairly rare in the world, really struggle with the disjuncture between the, the legacy structures that have perpetuated in the museum field, which segment culture into different sort of departments, which are long ago deemed artificial. And we, you know, if you go to a university today, I mean, Yale has even started teaching. They, they've, they've suspended their, their modern art history course. So these, a lot of these categories of boundaries have been washed away but they've been sort of preserved like sort of, you know, in amber in, 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 in the structures of many museums. And now there are very technical reasons for this. And I will say museums are very easy targets. They're easy to beat up. It's a little bit like going to a restaurant and, you know, your, your food comes out and it's like, ah, I don't like it. Well, it's actually really hard to cook well. And it's really hard to run a museum. And there are lots of very technical reasons if you have, let's say, <laughs> yes, it is. I can attest to If you happen to have 600,000 objects in your collection and you have to keep track of them and you have to know what they are, particularly for those museums that have permanent collections, there's a reason why these departments are there. And it's um, nonetheless, 
I think when you ask most directors, you know, what, what, what would their, be, their wish be? They would like to see more permeable boundaries between these so-called silos. They would like to see more lateral thinking. They would like to see more cross-cultural interaction. If you see what MoMA just did in its really very extraordinarily progressive rehang, uh, you see some of the results of that thinking. So yes, I think that that is a good thing. Easier said than done, but it's a good thing. But then immediately with that comes, I think, this question of education. And I would almost put digital education and marketing together, because I think one of the other issues that museums struggle with is that there is still a museum culture in which the sort of core curatorial product takes absolute primacy. And then very often, implicitly or explicitly, it's understood that it's sort of the job of the educators to sort of push that out or share that with the public. It's the job of the marketing department to make sure that people show up. And it's the job of the digital department. After all, that is a given to make sure that that you know, sort of push down the digital channels. Now, it's not the way the commercial world works anymore. And there are pros and cons to all this, but I think that in the real world, and by the way, there are many reasons why we don't want to just equate the museum with the real world, many reasons. But in the real world, when you're in the more commercial side of the world, you are much more consumer driven. So the idea that whatever you produce will eventually have to find an audience, that it will have to be communicated, that it will have to be explained, that it will have to go viral on social media. Those are day one questions. They don't just sort of get layered on, you know, in the second year of a development process of an exhibition, let's say. So I think that it would definitely benefit and does benefit museums when the education department, the conservation department, the marketing department, the certainly technology and digital media are really pulled into the sort of core level so that they're not just seen as sort of the outer ring, so to speak, of the enterprise. So this is, this is a lively discussion in different institutions because everybody wants to activate the collections. I mean, among other things, right now, we are living in this sort of golden moment of digital activation. I mean, everybody has sort of rushed into digital. And I think what we will see is, you know, it really, it, it has really sort of driven home the fact that digital engagement is, is absolutely essential to the survival of, of the museum. And I think when we come out of this, those who are in charge of digital engagement in museums will find their prestige inside the organization elevated because we've realized just how essential they are. And this is certainly the case for education. I think actually education, museum education, is one of the most misunderstood areas of, of the museum. You know, most people think it's, you know, it's about kids doing finger paintings. And in fact, it's an incredibly li lively and vibrant area. And also with a very strong digital aspect. And mind you, even museums that have been criticized for disengaging with their education staff, in many cases have at the same time made available unbelievable amounts of educational programming free of charge to the public. So this is, this is one of the stories that will unfold over a long period of time. Well, let's go back to this idea of the, of the digital experience versus uh, the lived or real-time experience, because there's been a lot written recently about 
what is going to happen when the museums reopen and how are these two worlds going to come together? There's a Michael Kaiser wrote an, uh, an essay recently about the, the fact that we're probably not doing ourselves a great big favor by making everything free on the internet because then everybody will feel that there's no real reason to go and actually go into a museum or go to a performance because they can just sit in their living room in their pajamas and eat popcorn and have the same sort of experience. So yes, I agree with you that these two things are going to have to walk down the aisle together. They're going to have to get married and they're going to have to stay married forever. But somehow we have to enhance and, and make sure we expand the appeal sure. of leaving your house and walking into an institution and having a different kind of experience, you know, which has to do with if you're standing in a gallery at the Parish Art Museum and a cloud goes over the sun, the light in the gallery will change and it changes the way you think about or feel about a, a work of art you might be seeing. So digital is a two-edged sword for, for me in that I know clearly that this is extremely important and there's a way to reach a very broad audience. I don't know where all of our all of our audience is from, but I think they've signed up from all over the place uh, in the United States and elsewhere. So how, how are we going to balance those two scales? I think very successfully. Uh, I, I, I have, I'm a, an absolute optimist that if anything, providing mediated experience to an unbelievably large public will only increase the appetite for those luxurious and deeply spiritual and meaningful moments of direct engagement with objects. I think we have seen this in every walk of life that the, the more widespread the awareness has been, whether it's cuisine or couture or you name it, one of the interesting features of this modern digital life is that it hasn't uh, made those analog experiences extinct. In many ways, it has elevated them in importance because so many more people are aware of these things. So when, when a museum has an annual visitation of 500,000, if it's lucky, and it has a digital audience of 5 million, that's a lot of people who ultimately would love to see that painting or that picture. And so I think that's a good thing. And I'm no, I've no doubt that people are absolutely able to differentiate between, and by the way, just as this crisis is showing us how important this engagement it is, it's also showing us the limitation. In fact, I think in the fourth line of my article, I said, you know, to simply go digital is kicking the can down the road. We really need the whole purpose of my article is like, please let us, commune with these objects. But I, again, I think that overall it's going to benefit us. The other point I would like to make is a point that I wasn't the one who thought of this, but I have a very good friend who's a, a scientist and a data scientist, and he, he made the point that, you know, the situation that we have now is sort of what the world looks like when we have to use technology and what we have is 4G technology. So had this same horrible virus come 10, 15 years ago, we would be in an impossible situation. We would be faxing each other. You know, we would be trying to use the landlines, you know, I don't know, sending each other letters. I'm not sure what we would be doing. Right now, we have 4G. Right now, this is what happens in a 4G world. And I think one of the learnings here is, is that a very substantial part of our economy has been able to sustain itself. This whole Zoom life, 
with all of its imperfections and you know the way everybody i know seems to just want to fall asleep at the end of the day because it just sort of sucks the energy out of you nonetheless we have it and we're able to conduct our, our life 10 years from now it's a whole different story that's a 5g or a 6g world and when people talk about the future of technology in museums they don't factor that in the, the, the technology you and I are using today is an almost obsolete technology that, you know, 10 years from now, um, we're going, you know, we're going to be talking about meaningful, interactive, virtual reality engagement. We're going to be talking about 3D printed objects to your home, some completely different idea of what digital technology will mean at that time and i think it will all support our devotion to art and the ideas embodied in art so we have a lot of questions and comments coming in from our audience i think maybe we could turn to some of those um first we have a comment which i think is actually um to your point uh what if museums got together and did something like great courses that we could pay for current exhibitions at x y and z with a docent taking us around or a tour of the permanent collection. Some of this stuff is happening, you know, some portion of a large museum. She says, I would pay to go to Paris, Beijing, the, the parish or the Perez. So I think that, you know, that's very much, you know, in line with what you were just talking about, that there, there are ways to open these doors. Can I just make one quick comment? Sure. You know, you mentioned a article of mine from 2000 and uh, it was written in late 2009 and it was a kind of debrief on the last big crisis. And uh, because we talked earlier this afternoon, you encouraged me to reread that article. And I was really stunned at how parallel that situation was. And then as now, one of the big discussion points was collaboration. And of course, I feel there is a lot of collaboration. There's a lot of collaborative programming, exhibitions, and so on. But I think there's a lot more that could be happening. And the ultimate form of collaboration which is not a pleasant one, but which we may see is mergers of museums. We, we have museums that will sooner sort of barely stay alive than consider merging with another cultural institution, still very rare, uh, but we may eventually see more of that, especially if the rebound is very slow. So we have another comment um, regarding practical near-term opening. Uh, he says museums could take the cues from destination entertainment like Disney or sports venues. And philosophically, museums can grow tremendously through the comfort and level of familiarity that everyone worldwide now has with uh, the, you know, ubiquitous media and video dialogue. So you know, as we're doing these kinds of programs, the more people get used to seeing people from the parish, things at the parish, uh, or any other museum would be more habituated to coming. Are museums positioned to harness this new familiarity? I think a few, he says, but should a management team focus their mission content in this way, it could greatly expand resources and brand. Expanding will enhance the opportunities for physical presence. Well, I'm curious what you think, but I mean, I think it's a, it's a, there's a generational change as well going on in the field. And I think that these ideas are more and more palatable. And in general, I think the idea that the museum is not you know sitting on top of mount olympus and that it has to sort of speak the language of the present day both in terms of what it's talking about and how it's talking about it and how it's engaging 
I, these are things that are constantly discussed. I, I think what's remarkable is uh, that there's a certain amount of inertia and, and even sort of caution. I think that museums are, uh, it's often said they're inherently conservative and, and partly because one of their functions is to conserve culture. Often I think the reluctance to sort of try out these ideas stems from a kind of cultural perfectionism. I think that it would, it would be a good thing for museums to be more willing to sort of try out ideas and hand over the keys to different voices and different people, even if the outcomes are not always perfect. I will say the one difference we do have compared to sports is, you know, again, we don't all have to show up at the same time. I think that's going to be a good thing. And lastly, I should say that uh, for years, we, uh, those of us who sometimes advocate for the arts, we make the point that, in fact, live museum visitation is uh, higher in most countries than live sport, uh, professional sport event visitation. I'm not saying that um, mediated uh, museum visitation is bigger, but actually more people actually go to uh, uh, museums than you know, professional sports. I'm gonna just, this is kind of a question for me, so I'll, I'll try to answer this as best I can. Uh, someone is asking, what do I, if I would take a moment to talk about the practical operation of the museum when it opens? First phase, what does the staff look like? How much of the educational and front of the house staff are employees that have been laid off and furloughed and how do we re-engage with those volunteers so vital for many in a small and medium-sized organization. So Maria, I'll try to answer as best I can. You know, we have a task force of, of staff that is looking at exactly all these questions. What does it look like the day that we open our door? Are people going to be wearing masks? Are people going to be washing their hands? Is it going to be timed entry? questions about the front of the house staff and security. Uh, you know, those are people that are, are furloughed at the moment because we don't have, you know, the public in the museum, but we continue to engage with those, those uh, employees through staff meetings and conversations. And of course, we're hoping that when the time comes, we'll be able to bring everyone back. What they'll be doing and how they'll be doing it could be very different, and job descriptions are, are probably going to change over time. But these are all questions that we're just coping with on a on a daily basis. Uh, hopefully, that you know that's a, I realize that that's not a very detailed answer, but it's about as uh, as much as I can say right now because we're still trying to work out exactly what that's going to mean. Another question was about the hierarchy of digital and real life barriers to entry more engaged in exclusive or personal programming for members and patrons versus less for the general public. I would say I, I don't think that the parish or any other museum would want to actually make a silo that would be more about personal engagement with, uh, with members and patrons and less about the general public. Uh, from my point of view, I think it would be uh, probably weighted more towards the general public but, but also creating special kind of programs for, for donors, more or less like we do now. But, you know, if we're going to talk about the, the importance of uh, the museum to a, a real functioning society, it has to be about all of the members of the society. And today's member of the general public is tomorrow's high-level patron and maybe trustee. Every trustee that I know, uh, really the most active people, the people that I've come to know over the years who give significant money, you ask them about how they got involved and they'll say, 
you know, I was a poor kid, but I, I went to the museum or, you know, my, my mom took me to the museum or whatever. So I don't see too much of a, a discontinuous aspect here. I think people, there's a kind of ladder of engagement and one hopes that people get more and more involved. I do think that regardless of whether they're patrons or members of the public, we can do more to invite them in. So um, one of the, you know, earlier we talked about the way in which we create a bit of a distance between us and our audience, where sometimes not intentionally. And one of the ways we do that, for example, is we reveal very little about how our exhibitions and programs come about. They sort of come out of the kitchen, you know, beautifully cooked and presented. And in recent years, some museums have been starting to do, I think, a much better job of sort of showing, you know, what happens behind the scenes. And what happens behind the scenes is super interesting. Conservation and preservation, super interesting. Storage, open storage, a lot of things are super interesting. And I think museums are, you know, looking for ways to invite people in, you know, like many other uh, type of institutions. I, I once wrote an article about this and compared the museum to a fancy restaurant and said, well, you know, 40 years ago, if you had said to a three-star Michelin chef, you know, break down the wall between your kitchen and your dining room, he would have thought, you're absolutely crazy. It would have been like an insult. And in fact, that is exactly what happened the the walls you know now you can go to many restaurants you see the gleaming kitchens and as i pointed out in that article not only is there now great public fascination with cuisine but the kitchens are much cleaner than they used to be so i think <laughs> we all benefit from this here's uh you know this is a really good comment here especially in uh, in light of your former life in the uh, art journalism uh, program uh, in terms of making spaces uh, comfortable and welcoming and familiar to people, speak normal language that the public can understand. Insist that articles, essays, didactic labels, catalog introductions are intended for what is now thought of as the general public. And that's written in a manner that, I love this, that doesn't make the reader feel like a, a, an Alzheimer's victim. You know, it's not just the language. We have a wonderful community here in Belport. I should probably tell you that, that Bel I mean, we're actually a mile east of Belport. We're in what is called Brookhaven Hamlet. We have a very lively art life here. Uh, Malcolm Morley used to live down the road. I'm actually speaking from the house that was owned by uh, the philosopher and art critic Arthur Danto. And we have a gallery in town, Marquee Project, which has an exhibition facing the street right now. We have a wonderful art collective named Auto Body that actually did something, I think, with you. And so we have wonderful neighbors. And one of my neighbors here, out here, is the architect, interior design and ar architect, uh, Elizabeth Roberts. And we've been having wonderful conversations with her about the interior spaces of museums and often how unwelcoming they are. So there's the communications in writing but there's also the physical aspect of museums. So, you know, here's a thought experiment. What would a museum be like if it was more like Soho House? You know, a place that... Hmm. What, what, maybe you should say what Soho House is for, for people. Oh, right. So Soho House is sort of like a club. It's like a very hip, 
club and you, you know it's also kind of co-working place and you can go there and you can meet clients and colleagues and friends and you can have food there and you can work there and it's a kind of third space and indeed in our consulting business we've uh, in recent years we've actually talked to some pretty illustrious museums in europe and some of which are half empty during the week and have these big spaces and we said well why don't you just have a co-working space here but generally speaking when you go into a museum one of the things that's really hard to do is sit down i mean you could go to the cafeteria and if you're lucky enough to visit the parish and it's a nice day you can be out there on that beautiful long uh, terrace but truth be told we're not very welcoming and I, again i think that this is a manifestation of an institutional attitude the gardner museum in boston and i think a good friend of mine from the gardner team may be on this call we'll find out they have this wonderful place called the living room when they were renovated when they got their addition it added uh, the the wonderful architect added this space called the living room which is not educational space, not curatorial space, not food and beverage space. It's a communal space with comfortable couches and plants and books and Wi-Fi. So what I would just like to say, and, and again, in our work, we, we talk about this a lot, that just because it's a museum doesn't mean it can't be comfortable and welcoming. And I think it's not just language, it's all of those surfaces of engagement that we need to think about. Well, and that brings me to another comment that was written in as a way of expanding museum offerings and exposing more people to art. What about museums installing small exhibitions in places that people go to for other reasons, like coffee shops, post offices, or even food stores? Art in unexpected places is educational. So there's two sides of the coin. You're saying, you know, I've been to the living room at the Gardner, and it's actually really wonderful, and you don't ever really want to leave because it's so comfortable. But is there something about moving outside the museum that is, uh, is something that museums should consider? Or is it uh, the idea is really to kind of still try to think of the museum as a, a different kind of third space that you would come to deliberately to have a particular kind of experience as opposed to I'm going to get a piece of cup of coffee and oh, oh my goodness, there's an installation there of artwork from the, the parish. So I think that depends on what kind of museum you are. I, it's not something I would necessarily advise for the parish to do because I think of the parish as a destination museum. It's, it's I go to the parish because I want to have this experience with the garden and so on. But I do think that for a, a museum in a major city, it could be a very, very good idea. In fact, we, we, we have clients who are pondering these issues. And in fact, already years ago, particularly when gas prices were high, I think there's an outfit called the Institute for the Future of Museums, or I forget their name. They talked about the fact that, uh, and, and you saw this in LA in particular with LACMA, that when you have a big city, uh, some of these big uh, global urban you know, places like LA or you name your Mexico City, I see that we have somebody online from the Anthropology Museum in Mexico, you know, these are monstrous cities with horrible traffic. So absolutely 100% it makes sense to think about having these outposts. Uh, we had it in New York, even the Whitney used to have them. I, it, it really depends where you are and who you are. Lastly, I should mention that if anybody has recently traveled through the airport at Schiphol, I'm not saying this year, but you know, in Amsterdam at the wonderful airport they have, 
the, the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam for many years operated an outpost at the airport. And I always thought, well, what a great idea. People are bored, all sorts of people are coming through. Um, you know, the Dutch are very creative that way. So I think, of course, now we all have an outpost everywhere because of the internet. But I do, I do think that for the right kind of institution, having those types of uh, satellites, even, uh, and this was the case in LA, you know, if you are in one part of the city uh, and you could, you could create a, a satellite in another part of that city where maybe you have a very different socioeconomic context, that could really help you deliver on that mission goal of engaging the wider community that, you know, that community may not come to you. So you go to that community. It's a very powerful statement. Well, I know that actually Michael Govan had had and maybe still has plans for or opening those kinds of satellite um, institutions in various neighborhoods in Los Angeles. You know, it does it does create you know some interesting questions and challenges about staffing. You know, the storytelling and the narrative as it relates to the the area that you're in. But it's a it's an interesting question. Uh, I should so, also mention just one more thing that uh, there's a I, I'm a big fan of a museum in Holland called the Bonnefanten Museum. Yes, terrific wonderful. museum in Maastricht. Um, they have a wonder couple of they're a very innovative director there. But one of the things they do is they do a pop up. Well, not this summer, sadly, but they do a pop up every year at sort of their version of Lulapalooza, like the local big music festival. And there's a pop-up version of Bonifante Museum, which by the way has Renaissance and contemporary works. And they do this pop-up because they believe that if they want to engage a younger audience segment, they need to go where those young people are. And it's tremendously popular and ends, ends up bringing back uh, young people to the museum. Uh, Corinne Ernie has reminded me in terms of uh, taking art outside the museum that uh, we do have a program called the Parish Roadshow uh, with Auto Body actually participated in that particular program where we, we do work with artists and commission them to, uh, to do installations and exhibitions in unusual spaces outside the museum. So we are, and as a matter of fact, when Auto Body did their project, they had pieces in fish stores and all up and down the whole, uh, the whole highway. Uh, we're about ready to come to a close. Um, and I wanna thank everybody for participating in the questions and the comments you sent were, were really very, very good. I'm hoping that uh, everybody is on pins and needles and waiting for the parish to come back in real life, but that you will continue to participate with us on Friday nights, these live, live chats as we go along. Andras, do you have uh, any parting words for uh, our audience uh, in terms of what they should be thinking about for the near future? Well, everybody should support their local museum. That's obvious. You know, I think that, you know, in 2000, and I go back to this article that I reread today, it was really so surprising. You know, we are going to get through this period, and I do believe very strongly that A, we are essential, and that there is a more than just an economic, but, but also I think a kind of mission, an ethical imperative to demonstrate our, our importance to society. And the, and the only true way we can do that is to find a way to reopen as soon as, as possible. And I also believe that in moments like this, I think this is true in everyone's life, in everyone's family, in everyone's business. You end up focusing on what is essential and important. And therefore, I'm quite optimistic that going forward, we, we will 
see a strengthening of some of the very, very progressive innovations that are happening, uh, including in wonderful institutions like the parish, which I look forward to visiting in person very soon. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Thank you for spending so much time with us tonight. Lots of food for thought. And when people start coming back to the parish, you'll see that uh, the, some of the things that we've talked about tonight will actually be realized in real time. So thank you all very, very, very much for coming. And, uh, and I hope to see you all again very soon. <laughs> thank you very much. Take care. Bye.